Welcome to Folk Liar. I'm the Chief Liar, Brian. I'm going to tell you a lie, but I'm also going to tell you two pieces of authentic folklore. If you can figure out which of the three stories is a lie, you could win a luxurious mug. All the details are real, except for the story I made up. And if you know your folklore, you should be able to spot the fake. I've rewritten all the stories in my own style, so whether you are a folklore expert or not, you can still have fun listening and take a guess anyway. I'll tell you how you can enter and win at the end of the show. Last episode, we tackled the trio of Russian folk tales. We began with the story of Big Little Bear, followed with the story of the miser, and concluded with the tale of the just reward. And it was nice to see things return to normal with each of the three stories receiving their fair share of guesses. Ultimately, though, only those of you who called out Big Little Bear as the fake story were correct and... After randomly selecting one of the correct guesses, it turns out that Eric H. was the big winner of the luxurious mug. Congratulations, Eric, and thanks to all the rest of you for taking the time to listen and make a guess. Tall tales are stories that are very difficult to believe, whether because the activities of the story are outrageous or because the teller of the tale has exaggerated the details beyond the ability of mere mortals to believe. Naturally, of course, all my stories are entirely true at all times. And if you don't believe me, just ask my close personal friends, the Beggar Priest, Baron Munchausen, and the wish-granting Passing Fairy. In fact, here they come now. Our first story comes from China and concerns a beggar priest, a merchant, and some pears. Naturally, of course, every word of this is true. We have the pear seeds to prove it. Once there was a farmer. He lived in the country, and there he grew the most delicious, fragrant pears you could ever hope to eat. They were juicy and sweet and full of flavor, and he resolved to go to town to sell them at market. When he got to town and parked his wagon, he was soon doing a booming business. Shortly, a Taoist priest in threadbare, torn clothes approached the wagon and begged for some fruit. The farmer shooed the priest away and refused to give him any fruit, but the priest didn't leave. Instead, the priest once more begged for a piece of fruit and once more was refused, this time more loudly than the last. Again, the priest begged, and again was refused, and by now the farmer was yelling and cursing the priest so loudly, the crowd gathered around to see what was causing the commotion. But why do you get so angry? asked the priest. Look how many pears you have. Your wagon must hold hundreds of them. I only want one. That would be no great loss to you. The crowd agreed with the priest and began trying to persuade the farmer to part with even a bruised pear and so be rid of the man. Instead, the farmer stood on his pride and refused yet again. Finally, a market guard noticed the disturbance and, rather than allow the situation to get out of hand, put up a few coins with which to buy the priest a pear. Receiving it, the priest held the pear over his head and loudly thanked the guard for his generosity. Then, turning to the crowd, the priest said, We who have left the world find man's greed hard to understand. Let me offer some choice pears to all you good customers. Why don't you just eat it yourself now that you have it? shouted out someone from the crowd. Oh, no, no, answered the priest. 
All I needed was a seed for planting. And so saying, he gobbled the pear up, taking care to save a seed as he did so. Then he took a small shovel from his pack, dug a shallow hole, and placed the seed in it, being sure to cover it back up with dirt. He called out for hot water, and, finding someone in the crowd who enjoyed stirring things up for guards, farmers, and priests alike, was soon given some. This the priest poured over the seed he had just planted, while the crowd watched him carefully. Within moments, the dirt parted, and behold, a tiny shoot appeared and began growing. On and on it went, until in mere seconds it was a full-grown pear tree, with a tangle of twigs and leaves and little pear blossoms that just as quickly as you could wish turned into ripe, juicy pears, hanging from every branch until they drooped down so far they almost touched the ground again. The crowd pressed forward, eager for a taste. The priest stepped to the tree to begin handing out the luscious fruit to the onlookers. Everyone wanted one, and soon the tree was bare again. Seeing this, the priest took up his shovel again, and this time, using it like an axe, he began to chop at the tree. Tang, 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 went his little shovel, until finally the tree fell. Looking utterly relaxed and untroubled, the priest threw the top half of the pear tree over his shoulder and walked off out of the market, humming to himself. The whole time this was going on, the farmer had been watching with amazement just like the crowd and forgot all about his business. But when he came to himself and remembered about his cart full of pears, he discovered the wagon was empty and no pears remained within it. He began to suspect it was his own pears which the crowd had enjoyed so much, and when he discovered the tongue of his wagon had been chopped off, he soon realized what had happened, and that it had been this that the priest had cut down. But by then, the priest was long gone, and the crowd was in an uproar of laughter at the farmer's expense. Our second story concerns one of the world's most famous honest men. The good Baron Munchausen has been a noted teller of truth since at least the 18th century. In fact, he once told so much truth, some of it had to be committed to film more than once. The other day, I sent the Baron a letter concerning a bit of minor mischief my cat had gotten into. This was his reply. Your interesting missive has reminded me of the time I found myself stranded on the Indian continent with nothing more than a hat pin and a container of peanut butter from Suriname with which to survive a series of vicious tiger attacks and rescue his majesty's forces then under my command. I was stationed in Punjab as part of his majesty's expeditionary force. We had been some time in marching through the vast jungles of India, and supplies were running low. Men were beginning to starve, and already some errant nibbling had occurred. Being the most sound member of our group, I was sent out to secure supplies for the rest of the men and myself. I selected the next three most able men to accompany me, two of whom had been reduced to but one leg in the company's efforts to stave off starvation. Still, they were the most hale and hearty of the bunch that remained, and we set out to bravely rescue our fellows if we could. We took with us the last remaining half tin of peanut butter, 
with which to sustain ourselves in the hopes of returning with a much greater reward. As you well know, the foliage is dense and impenetrable in this part of India, so much so that we were unable to reckon the time of day by the simple act of viewing the sun. The overhanging, thick, seemingly endless canopy obscured our view, and a great darkness accompanied all aspects of our journey. Frequently the only light we had to see by was the glow of healthy optimism that pervaded our faces, and even that was beginning to fade from the faces of my companions, though, of course, I myself was undaunted. Where the Baron goes, so too does hope. It soon became obvious to me that we must determine the time of day and thereby gauge our progress, and so make the journey by the most direct possible route. For if the companions in my presence were losing heart, how much worse must it be for those denied my constant association? I ordered one of our group up a nearby tree, which I judged tall enough to peek above our concealing layer of foliage. Instead of the swift accomplishment of the task I was accustomed to, he complained bitterly about the difficulty of the climb, having been one of those who had earlier made a noble sacrifice to save us from hunger. I therefore sent also a second one-legged man up the tree with him, impeccably reasoning that between the two of them, they had just enough legs and twice as many arms as required for the task, and so the ascent should be at least half as easy as it would have been for my fully equipped man. Upon achieving the top of the tree, both gentlemen raised an unholy ruckus containing many words and phrases unsuitable to the mouths of men in service to the king and sure to damage even your coarse sensibilities. Therefore, I shall refrain from reproducing them here. They let go their grips upon the limbs of the tree and plummeted to the ground, breaking one leg each. Fortunately, it was the leg they had already lost, and no harm was done to us, though I did hear later that several of the men left behind at camp developed mysterious kinks about their abdomens, which took several weeks to return to normal. After admonishing the men about their language, I inquired as to the cause of their terror. These two normally stout-hearted men were notably ashen and could only babble incoherently, as if some great fear had come over them. Finally resolving myself to put an end to this matter, I began an ascent of the tree on my own, not knowing what I would find. Taking firm grip of my boots, I pulled myself straight up into the air by my bootstraps, and several feet up along the trunk of the tree, thereby coining that now well-known phrase. Reaching the limits of even my own prodigious strength, I then reached out and grabbed hold of the trunk to continue my climb. I made short work of the intervening distance, and cautiously interposed my eyes above the topmost branches. I instantly ascertained that we were well past the hour when all good and honest men should be abed. They say honest men sleep best, and as if to prove the matter, I immediately broke into an expansive, all-encompassing yawn. If anyone should have been at his rest before now, it was most definitely myself. It was well that I did so, though, for nestled in a small group atop the very same tree was a pack of the most foul, vicious Indian tigers any man could hope to encounter. They too had climbed the tree in order to decipher the time, for tigers prowl at night, and it would not do for them to be out in the daylight where they may easily be seen. They were a hungry lot, perhaps even as hungry as ourselves, though in the brief moment I had to see them, they did seem to be in full possession of their own limbs. 
Upon spotting me, they, perhaps sensing an easy meal though they knew me not, leapt at me as one in an effort to bring me within their clutches. Naturally, they had not paused to evaluate the situation before they attacked. Perhaps they would have spared themselves disaster if they had. My yawn was so large and my hunger so great that the tigers might as well have flung themselves into one of the bottomless pits of hell as attacked me. They were immediately encapsulated within my mouth, having leapt there of their own accord in their haste. Reflexively I swallowed and, though the fur of their body did tickle somewhat as they passed my tonsils, they soon found themselves within my stomach. Four tigers in all entered my throat, and not one remained atop the tree. I descended the tree rapidly, hampered only somewhat by the internal struggle, as each tiger attempted to assign to the others the blame for their present predicament and escape at the same time. Their roaring and howling was something of a distraction, as was their constant nipping at my insides. It seemed to me that if it were allowed to continue, I might eventually suffer sufficiently to require some bicarbonate of soda, though no local sources existed, and it would therefore entail another expedition entirely, one which I was not prepared at that time to undertake. I climbed swiftly down and rejoined my men. Keeping my jaws carefully shut, lest one should escape, I explained, by means of a sign language of my own invention, the situation to my fellows. They were intelligent men, and quickly understood what I would have them do. They brought me the half jar of peanut butter, and I took from my hat a ten-inch hat pin that I kept about my person for just such an occasion. Handing the jar to my single two-legged companion, I waved my other companions one to each side, where they took firm grasp of my belt. Once ready, I gave the sign to start my plan. As my two monopodal fellows tightened the belt about my waist, the tigers began to rise up out of my stomach and into my throat. Opening my mouth only slightly, my man with the jar could observe the flashing teeth and gaping maws of the enraged tigers. Quickly, using the flat of a boot knife, he daubed peanut butter into each tiger's mouth, securely gumming them shut, this being the chief characteristic of Suriname peanut butter. Once all the tigers had been subjected to this treatment, I began jabbing the hat pin down my throat, forcing each tiger back down and into my gut once more, as the men on my belt gradually loosened their hold. Once they were down, I myself took a great helping of the peanut butter and sealed my own mouth shut, thus cutting off any exit they may have had in that direction, while my belt was left somewhat tighter than normal, for reasons which no gentleman should have to explain. Thus encumbered, and with the situation well in control, we made our way back to camp where the peanut butter was carefully removed from my jaws, and each man in His Majesty's expeditionary force dined spectacularly on peanut butter stuffed tiger for several days thereafter. So that you may know me to be truthful and honest in all things, I have included the very hat pin I used. Yours as ever. Baron Munchausen. It pays to remember how you started, especially if you happen to encounter, even unawares, a passing wish-granting fairy. As this tale from England reminds us, it is best to remain humble and, above all, thankful. Once upon a time, Back in the days when anyone would live in anything for the sake of having some shelter against the weather, there was a woman 
who lived in a vinegar bottle. She wasn't happy about it, but there you go. That's where she lived. One day, a fairy was passing by the vinegar bottle when she happened to hear the old woman complaining to herself. It's a shame, it's a shame, it's a shame, said the old woman. I didn't ought to live in a vinegar bottle. I ought to live in a nice cottage with a thatched roof and a little rose garden out the front and roses growing up the wall like I ought. Well, the fairy, looking in, said, Very well, go to bed tonight and turn around three times. Shut your eyes and in the morning you shall see what you shall see. So the old woman went to bed, turned around three times and shut her eyes. When she awoke in the morning, there she was, in a pretty little cottage with a thatched roof and a little rose garden out the front and roses growing up the walls. She was, as you may imagine, very surprised and very pleased. But she forgot to thank the fairy. Meanwhile, the fairy went about her business to the north and south and east and west and all over the place. Presently, she happened to think, I'll go and see how that old woman is getting on. She must be very happy in her little cottage. And so she went. As she got up to the front door, she heard the old woman talking to herself. It is a shame, it is a shame, it is a shame. I didn't ought to live in a little cottage like this all by myself. I ought to live in a nice little house in a row of houses with lace curtains at the windows and a brass knocker on the door and people calling mussels and cockles outside all merry and cheerful. The fairy was pretty surprised, but looking in said, Very well, go to bed tonight and turn around three times. Shut your eyes and in the morning you shall see what you shall see. So the old woman went to bed, turned around three times, and shut her eyes. When she awoke in the morning, there she was, in a nice little house, in a row of little houses, with lace curtains at the windows and a brass knocker on the door, and people calling mussels and cockles outside, all merry and cheerful. She was, as you may imagine, very surprised and very pleased. But she forgot to thank the fairy. Meanwhile, the fairy went about her business to the north and south and east and west and all over the place. Presently, she happened to think, I'll go and see how the old woman is getting on. Surely she must be very happy in her house now. And so she went. And when she got to the little row of houses, she heard the old woman talking to herself. It is a shame, it is a shame, said the old woman. I didn't ought to live in a row of houses like this with common people on each side of me. I ought to live in a great mansion in the country with a big garden all around it and servants to answer the bell. And the fairy was very surprised and rather annoyed. But she said, very well, go to bed and turn around three times and shut your eyes. And in the morning, you will see what you will see. And the old woman went to bed and turned around three times and shut her eyes, and in the morning there she was, in a great mansion in the country, surrounded by a fine garden and servants to answer the bell. And she was very pleased and very surprised, and she learned how to speak genteelly, but she forgot to thank the fairy. Meanwhile, the fairy went about her business to the north and south and east and west and all over the place. Presently, she happened to think, I'll go and see how that old woman is getting on. Surely she must be very happy about the mansion. And so she went. But no sooner had she got near the old woman's drawing room window 
and then she heard the old woman talking to herself in a genteel voice. It certainly is a very great shame, said the old woman, that I should be living alone here, where there is no society. I ought to be a duchess driving in my own coach to wait on the queen with footmen running beside me. The fairy was very much surprised and very much disappointed. But she said, Very well, go to bed tonight and turn around three times and shut your eyes, and in the morning you shall see what you shall see. So the old woman went to bed and turned around three times and shut her eyes, and in the morning there she was, a duchess with a coach of her own to wait on the queen and footmen running beside her. And she was very much surprised and very much pleased, but she quite forgot to thank the fairy. Meanwhile, the fairy went about her business to the north and south and east and west and all over the place, and presently she happened to think, I'll go and see how the old woman is getting on. Surely she must be very happy now that she is a duchess. And so she went. But no sooner had she come to the window of the old woman's great town mansion than she heard her saying in a more genteel tone than ever, it is indeed a very great shame that I should be a mere duchess and have to curtsy to the queen. Why can't I be the queen myself and sit on a golden throne with a golden crown on my head and courtiers all around me? The fairy was very much disappointed and very angry. But she said, Very well, go to bed and turn around three times and shut your eyes and in the morning you shall see what you shall see. So the old woman went to bed and turned around three times and shut her eyes, and in the morning there she was, in a royal palace, a queen in her own right, sitting on a golden throne with a golden crown on her head and her courtiers all around her, and she was highly delighted and ordered them about right and left. But she quite forgot to thank the fairy. Meanwhile, the fairy went about her business to the north and south and east and west and all over the place. Presently, she happened to think, I'll go and see how that old woman is getting on. Surely she must be very happy now, what with being the actual queen. And so she went. But as soon as she got near the throne room, she heard the old woman talking it is a great shame, a very great shame, she said, that I should be queen of a paltry little country like this, instead of ruling the whole round world. What I am really fitted for is to be Pope, to govern the minds of everyone on earth. Very well, said the fairy. Go to bed. Turn round three times. Shut your eyes. And in the morning, you shall see what you shall see. So the old woman went to bed, full of proud thoughts. She turned round three times and shut her eyes. And in the morning, she was back in her vinegar bottle, right where she belonged. And so ends the third of my three tall tales, and quite tall they were indeed. But which do you think was too tall? 
Which one do you think didn't have the complete ring of truth about it? Was it the story of the priest and the pears? The baron and the tigers? Or perhaps the old woman and the fairy was just a little too much to totally believe. If you think you know, and even if you don't, send your guest to liar at folkliar.com. If you're correct, you'll be entered into a drawing for this episode's prize, the luxurious mug. Don't wait too long, though. You've only got five days from this episode's release date to enter. Be sure to include the episode title in the response so I know which show you're entering for. We can be found on the web at folkliar.com and on Twitter at folk underscore liar. Folkliar is supported by your generous contributions on Buy Me a Coffee. Head over to buymeacoffee.com slash fiddleback to become a member and support the show. You'll be in fine company. And just like new members, Binaroov, Christian, H2G2Bob, Keith, AJ, Sirenthal, Alex, Wigapai, Andrew, Renee, and Owen. You too can get access to transcripts, early episodes, and more. Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash fiddleback and become a member. And if you are already a member, thanks. That's pretty cool. Thanks for listening. Folklier is a production of Fiddleback Productions and is researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey. Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Our luxurious mug prize is awarded by random draw from among all correct entries. Entries are only accepted by email to liar at folkliar.com. Entries are due no later than five days after the episode is first published. One entry per person, please.